Well, good morning, beloved. I'm Pastor Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills Church. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. And we began our Lenten journey this past Ash Wednesday. And we came together reminding that we come from dust and dust we shall return. We were challenged to observe a holy Lent by self-examination, by repentance, prayer and fasting, sacrificial love and self-denial and reading and studying and meditating on God's Word. Today we begin our Lenten series on the ancient book of Job. It's a story that wrestles with the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? That question's a tough one. It is. We know that we are all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God and God's call to holiness. But in the book of Job, we see a guy who is as good as anyone could be, and yet terrible things happens to him. Job is like a book of wisdom. It's, a, it's, a, it's like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It starts with the backstory of Job's life and then terrible tragedies that struck him, followed by a long series of conversations between either Job and his friends or Job and God. And it concludes with a gigantic flex from God, maybe the biggest in the whole Bible. And I challenge you to stick around for this whole series because we're going to be both frustrated and then amazed by God at times. Job lived a long, long time ago. Most scholars believe that he predated Moses and even Abraham. And some debate whether this book is a historical parable, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's no way to know for sure. And it's not a huge deal because Job is written for us to understand suffering, but the power of God, that we can do that regardless of whether it's a, a parable or a historical account. Job was a man of impeccable, impeccable character. He found himself at the center of a, a cosmic battle between God and Satan. Let's look at this scripture together. In the land of Uz... There lived a man named, whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man, <clears throat> man among all the people of the East. He was blameless. Now this doesn't mean perfect, but it means he was a stand-up guy that nobody could criticize. He was blessed with a large family, ten children. He was financially loaded. The oxen plowed the ground to produce crops. The sheep produced wool. The donkeys and camels, they transported the goods that the farm, the farm produced. What a business. Job was like running Amazon of his day. <laughs> By today's standards, he's like a billionaire, like Jeff Bezos. Let's look at verses 1, 4, and 5. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and he would invite, they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. 
Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking that perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Job was so righteous that he, he worried about how his children would be viewed in the eyes of God. He was standing in the gap for his kids. He was offering sacrifices in case they had thought some bad things about God. And this shows how much he loved his kids and how much he respected God. We do this, don't we? We care about our children's decisions and our children's actions. We'll do anything to stand in the gap for our kids. We pray for them. We advocate for them. It's what righteous parents do. We want them to thrive and have high moral character. And this is powerful stuff. And don't ever think that your prayers for your kids will go unanswered. So now we have the dialogue with God and Satan. Job 1, 6-12. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Remember that Satan is a fallen angel, and the Bible tells us that he became so arrogant that God kicked him out of heaven for that sin. So the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered with, to the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. This is kind of ancient lingo to say that he was just hanging out, that he was chillaxing on earth. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, if you're living a holy life and God starts bragging on you, oh yeah, you're pretty high standards in this world. Check out Job. This guy is crushing it. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are so spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And surely, he will surely curse you to your face. So basically he's saying, oh, Job, Job obeys you because you have 3,000 camels. It's just like 3,000 cars. How can a man not be holy when you give him a 3,000 car garage for crying out loud? Let him feel some pain, Satan says, and he'll fold like a cheap suit. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God doesn't do what Satan asks God himself doesn't strike Job, but Job or God permits Satan to do it with one condition, that he spare his life. Now this leads me to a very deep theological question. What were you thinking, God? Seriously. God doesn't cause this, but he obviously allows it. And the results are horrific. Look what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabines attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell down from the heavens and burned up the sheep and your servants. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, 
The Chaldeans came and formed three raiding parties and swept down uh, your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. So what's left? Really, just Job and Mrs. Job and a couple servants. That's it. This is terrible. It's horrible. It's no good. It's a very bad day. Enemies steal Job's livestock. Fire consumes his sheep. A mighty wind collapses on his children's house. Plus, he finds out all of this news in a matter of seconds. And the author gives us a sense of doom by reporting the events from the messenger's standpoint instead of reporting the the events directly. One messenger can't even finish their story before another story of doom gets interrupted by the next messenger. We all know that life can turn on a dime, but this is a whole nother level. And then in chapter 2, Satan comes back to God again and says the only reason that Job hasn't cursed you, God, is, is because I wasn't allowed to touch him. So God allows Satan to hit Job with painful boils on his skin. They were so painful that Job scraped those boils with broken pieces of pottery to get some relief. There's another bad day right there. So what does Job do about it? What does he say to God? Does he curse God? Nope. In both instances, Job gives an incredibly faithful response. Job 1, 20-22 says, Job stood up, tore his robes in grief. Then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. That's Ash Wednesday stuff there. Basically, I came from dust, and dust I'm going to return. Show of hands. How many of you would have responded that way? (laughs) Notice my hand is not in the air. Job is hurting. But he recognizes that nothing is guaranteed in this life. And he surrenders himself to the Lord. God was with him when things were good. And Job trusts that God will be with him when things are bad. There's so much hope, my friends. We can find hope in suffering when we surrender our pain to the Lord. We can find hope in suffering when we surrender our pain to the Lord. This is a challenging story, so let's dive right into the problems. The author has let us in on a little secret that that Job will never fully understand. His sufferings are not a punishment for his sins. In fact, they are actually a demonstration of his righteousness. And Job's faithfulness proves his love for God. Anybody can love God when he makes you rich and famous. Big deal, but can you love God when life stinks? When God doesn't immediately take away your pain? Think about the last 
pain, big pain that you went through. Maybe you're going through pain right now. Do you see it as an opportunity to grow in your faith and demonstrate that Jesus is indeed Lord of your life? If so, I commend you. But surrender in the midst of pain is not a natural thing to do. I read this and I say, what are you thinking, God? Why would you say yes to Satan's challenge? Are humans doomed to suffer like Job to prove that they are faithful? This chapter opens up more questions than answers, and it should tick us off at some level. And one of the hardest things about confronting suffering as a Christian, that is in the middle of suffering, we must come face to face with a sovereign God. He doesn't cause every bad thing that happens, but he does allow it. Again and again, Scripture describes God as someone who is all-powerful and knows everything about us. And that's a hard truth when we are suffering. I don't always know why God allows suffering. But I know time after time in my life, I've seen God use those situations for good in my life and for His glory. He's the greatest recycler of garbage that sin brings into the world. And Job's story just isn't for Job. These biblical characters, they they represent us. And Job's suffering helps us find hope in our suffering. And Job is going to grow through this hard time. Why did God allow it? Because until Jesus returns, suffering is a part of life, my friends. You will grow better or you'll grow bitter through suffering. The choice is yours. Job teaches us the truth found in James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when you en- your endurance is fully developed, you'll be, a perfect, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you want to grow anything in life, you have to make sacrifices. You don't learn to throw a football like Joe, Joe Burrow if you're sitting on the couch. You don't build a great company by just working a couple hours a week. You don't build a great marriage by ignoring your spouse. Growth requires hard work, pain, prayer, sacrifice. And the challenge of of preaching from Job is that I'm not going to leave everything all neatly tied up in a nice little bow every week, this Lenten series. Here's why. Job's pain was real, much worse than whatever I've encountered. His suffering was no joke, my friends. And friend, your pain is real as well. I'm not going to invalidate it by trying to make this stuff cute and easy every week. We're going to walk together going through some very, to some very difficult places and some great places. And we're going to seek the Lord along the way. Because in my belief, in my 53 years on earth, I've learned three truths that I know. Number one, life is hard. Number two, God is faithful. And number three, I won't understand every problem I face. So the logical question is this. Why have faith in God? Most people would accept number one and three, but two is is more debatable. What difference does two make? 
Christianity teaches that number one and three are a direct result of sin. Remember, God didn't create the world to be the way it is today. And sometimes we we look at our own brokenness and say, well, that's just how God made me. No, it's not. God made us for the Garden of Eden. God made us to be intimately in love with Him and with each other. God made us to care for one another, to care for creation. But we fell into temptation and we sinned and we broke uh, God's perfect creation. And sin leads to all suffering, although it's not the only cause of suffering. So Job will teach us how to walk faithfully through suffering, sometimes from his success and sometimes from his struggle, sometimes from wise advice and sometimes through really bad advice. We're going to see it all. And that's what I love about this book. It's raw. It's real. Just like human suffering is raw and real. The book of Job does not always provide easy answers because there's no easy answers to our suffering. And we know that life can change on a dime. You never know what a a phone call or an officer coming to your door bringing tragic news can bring. And I wish I could tell you that if you choose to surrender to God and make Jesus Lord of your life and that you'll never have pain and suffering... That would be a great sales pitch for Christianity, but it's not true. Choosing faith in the midst of suffering will not eliminate the pain. You see, Job was nearly crushed, crushed by the pain of his suffering. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground when he heard that his children had died. And yet, in such such pain and heartache, Job made one of the greatest statements of faith ever made. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Later he would say, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Hear me, friend. Without God's faithfulness, every human story ends in tragedy because... We all die. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, fade to black. That's human existence. And if there is no God, if the Bible is a myth, and I'm wrong about everything, then life at its best will look like this. You are born, you struggle, you grow, you struggle and you hopefully succeed, you struggle, you age, you struggle, and then you eventually die. Then it's over. And life is always hard, And always ends in death. That's the whole story if there is no God. You experience some good and some suffering and then you die. Hopefully you've moved humanity down the field a few inches. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? But think about these three truths again. Number one, life is hard. Number two, God is faithful. Number three, I won't fully understand every problem that I face. What if number two is actually true? What if there is a God in heaven? God, the God of Job. But he's bigger than just that. Job isn't the only story of suffering that we see in the Bible. God saw us suffering and knew he could, he could do something about it. So he left heaven. He came down to earth. And get this, he suffered with us. He didn't have to, no. He chose to. 
Not only did he suffer, he suffered for a purpose. In his suffering, he paid the price for our sin. He opened the door to heaven so that there could be real hope for us. He rose from the dead, defeated the enemy once and for all. He opened the door to eternal life. He opened the door to us experiencing his faithfulness. And if I'm willing to surrender my life to him, to trust that his innocent suffering paid the price for my sins, that I can have eternal life, it's not just some future thing. It's a thing that begins now. Even though it's not in this final form, we can experience the fullness of God and be filled with his strength and his love and his peace that surpasses understanding in the now. So here we are on this planet where suffering is still very real and we can only begin to taste the kingdom of heaven but we don't live into its fullness. But here's the thing, we don't suffer alone. When we pray, we are praying to a God who was betrayed by his friend. He was rejected by the people he loved. He was condemned to death by the people he came to save. He was mocked and and whipped and crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross, all by the hands of the people he created and he came to save. What if when you pray to this God from a place of pain and suffering, what if he actually understands and knows what it's like? What if he can give his peace? What if he does calm the storms? What if he does supernaturally heal? What if he gives you the grace even when he doesn't take away the thorn in your flesh? What what if he gives you grace to make it through to the end of your time here on earth? What if the Bible's prophecies are true i won't tell you the end of job's story for a while but this week i want to remind you the end of the story the end of the story here on earth for every follower of jesus the story here on earth for every follower of jesus look at revelation 21 3 through 5 i heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. God is faithful. God loves you. God has a plan and a purpose and a future for you, my friend. And God will give you the grace to sustain you in all things. And when we surrender our lives unto him, We get to see him work in a powerful and profound way in our lives.